Good evening. Hi there. I'm Declan Ralph, and welcome along to the Near FM special live debate in advance of the elections on Saturday next, the 8th of February. We're live on the radio at 90.3 on Near FM and also on Near.ie. We're live here too in front of our studio audience at the Northside Civic Centre on Bunratty Road in Coolock. And we're here till 9 p.m. this evening, so there's lots of time to get the opportunity to hear what the candidates have to say on a range of issues that affect the people here in this constituency of Dublin Bay North. Now, I'll be asking uh, the candidates questions that our studio audience here uh, put forward, along with those that come in on the Near FM text line, which is 87 59 That's 87 69 And those that come in on social media as well via Twitter, and you'll find us on at Near FM on Twitter. Okay, now let's chat about the candidates for a moment. There are 18 candidates in total seeking election to the Dáil here in Dublin Bay North, and there are five seats available. And in the interest of fairness and balance, I'm just going to call out who the 18 candidates are. Uh, they're not all with us here tonight, but I'll tell you in a moment who is. So the candidates are Richard Bruton, TD, Senator Catherine Noon, Sean Hockey, TD, Councillor Deirdre Heaney, Deirdre Mitchell, TD, Senator Aidan O'Reardon, Councillor Keane O'Callaghan, Councillor David Healy, Bernard Mulvey, Councillor John Lyons, Michael Burke, Connor Craven, Brian Garrigan, Ben Gilroy, Linda McAvoy, Michael O'Brien, Prunchies O'Conron, and Sean O'Leary. Now, there are seven candidates uh, with me now here in the Northside Civic Centre. And the candidates that are here are Councillor Deirdre Heaney from Fianna Fáil, Senator Aidan O'Reardon from Labour, Keane O'Callaghan from the Social Democrats, Councillor David Healy of the Green Party. Uh, from People Solidarity, People Before Profit, we have Michael O'Brien. Uh, we've Councillor John Lyons, Independent Left. And we have Linda McAvoy, who's an Independent. So you're very welcome, all of you. Now, I'm going to give each candidate um, one minute to outline to the audience here and to the listeners at home why you should vote for them to represent you in the next all. Um, I think at this point it's worth pointing out as well, we have no sitting TD here with us tonight, although they were asked and they have sent their apologies, so just make that point. Um, so we're going to start in reverse alphabetical order for a change. So that means I invite Aidan O'Reardon first. Um, so one minute each and uh, Alan will give us uh, the nod when the minute is over. Why should people vote for you, Aidan? And thanks very much uh, for, the, for the invitation. Um, and it's Aon like crayon, um, just, just to start off. Um, I suppose I've been working hard for the last four years since the last general election. Uh, I learned a lot from the last general election. Uh, I learned a lot from losing out. Uh, and I've worked very hard to regain people's trust. So I've been involved in a huge number of campaigns over that time. Uh, people will be familiar with what we've tried to do in Protect St. Anne's Park. They'll be familiar uh, in the successful campaign to save Dunamid Library. They'll be familiar with what I've been doing. Uh, in terms of autism services here locally and working with people uh, to try uh, and get 
the state and get public services uh, to work for them. Um, I try to do positive politics. I don't try to, to criticize others. I, I, I'm a great believer in what communities can, can deliver themselves. Uh, I have a, a, a fierce belief in the power of equality. Uh, and I bring that to the, to the work that I do. So uh, a huge number of things are very important to me. Uh, drug services will be one. Uh, and in this particular uh, geographical area, uh, we know that have, we have massive challenges in terms of housing, uh, in terms of homelessness, and in terms of drug services, and also in terms of crime and policing. And I believe that collectively working together, we can find the solutions. Okay. Thanks, Aon, and apologies for no getting the name <laughs> wrong. Uh, Keen, you're up next. Keen O'Callaghan of the Social Democrats. And thanks very much for the invite along. As a councillor for the last 10 years, I have experience working with people in communities and seeing firsthand how a lot of decisions made at a government level impact on us. So one of the things I want to highlight is that here in the north side of Dublin, we have higher waiting lists than anywhere else in the country for children, for example, who need to get a psychological assessment, for older people who need home help hours. And this is something that hasn't been highlighted or campaigned on by our existing representatives for this constituency over the last 10 years. Um, that unfair treatment that we've been getting on the north side, I think, needs to stop and needs to be challenged. And that's one of the things that I want to uh, bring to representation for Dublin Bay North if I'm elected. Thanks, Keen. Uh, now to Michael O'Brien, Solidarity People Before Profit. Michael. Hi there. I'm a socialist and trade union activist for the last uh, 28 years and a former. Dublin City Councillor uh, for this area. I think from Solidarity People Before Profit's point of view, we want to challenge the big claims that are made by the government about the recovery. If we're having a recovery, it's a recovery of a certain type. Uh, it's one where there's growing inequality and catastrophic failures on a range of public service issues, healthcare, childcare, but most of all uh, on housing. And I think what a lot of people want to see, it's evidenced in the opinion polls, is, is a complete change from what we've had over the preceding decades. I would like to see a left government, uh, but if a left government isn't available to us uh, after this election, I think that it is important that we have a, a strong radical left component, the likes of which we have had over the preceding five years, because they, connected with people, power type campaigns like the water charges movement and repeal, have themselves been very big drivers for change in this country. And I think we need to replicate those type of movements around the other issues that I've cited, uh, healthcare and, and housing uh, in particular. So I want to play my role in that uh, in, in this, the course of this election. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Okay, independent candidate, Linda McAvoy. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Linda McAvoy, and I'm running for Dublin Bay North in the general election uh, as an independent. Uh, I'm from Clontarf. Uh, my family have been there since the 1950s. I'm a qualified uh, solicitor, um, and I'm also uh, passionate about patient safety within the health service executive. Um, I have been the primary care manager of uh, my mother's care for the last eight years and have been battling the HSE and their legal representatives um, in a most uh, serious case uh, since 2012. I have seen firsthand and experienced the bullying, the harassment, the intimidation that ordinary families go through when trying to obtain the best care for their loved ones uh, within the community. It, the attitude seems to be that if you are a problem, they simply want you to take that problem away. On a wider national um, uh, scale, I am gravely concerned about the increasing democratic deficit. There are large numbers of voters who feel they have no voice and are too afraid to exercise that voice. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. Uh, we move on now to Councillor John Lyons. John. Yeah. Good evening, and uh, just to first commend Nirvem once again 
for affording us this opportunity to uh, meet and discuss the issues pertinent to people in this general election. I think you've been consistent in that. Uh, I've been a city councillor here in Dublin City, representing this area for the past six years. And I think in that time, uh, there's been a 300% increase in homelessness uh, each and every month in the council chamber in City Hall. Uh, you know, cross-party, people would wave their hands up in the air and bemoan the fact that things are getting worse. But when it came to the crunch, and when we talk about those of us on the left, I'm as a socialist uh, interested in societal change, structural change, when we propose radical uh, plans to use public land for public and affordable housing, we're told we can't do it. It's not feasible, it's not realistic, um, we have to do with, uh, whatever national government says. I think people are fed up of that conservative approach to politics. I think people are fed up in general with politics. On the doorsteps uh, and in the opinion polls, you're seeing a firm rejection of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, uh, the two parties who've dominated the Irish state since its foundation, uh, propped up over the years by the smaller parties of Labour, the Greens and the Progressive Democrats. They want to see real change, and I think I want to play a part in that. I believe in collective action, bring about uh, people power uh, campaigns, bring about that real change, particularly Thanks, when it comes to housing and health. Okay. People are really suffering out there, okay, and John, that's a result of the yeah, policies of the main that. parties. Thank uh, you. Councillor Deirdre Heaney. Deirdre. Thank you. I have yeah. a particular interest in carers, um, animal welfare, and crime prevention measures. Uh, I have a particular interest in carers who care for loved ones in the home. Since about 2012-2013, I've come across a huge amount of people who are completely isolated in their own homes, looking after loved ones, particularly loved ones who are living with dementia. I have worked, I suppose, really, really um, hard at local city council level and have gotten the support of Owen Keegan, our chief executive, around some initiatives that I have progressed around caring for dementia. Um, I think that as a society we hugely undervalue carers and the caring professions, nurses, doctors, teachers, all different types of carers. It, it, a couple of people that I called to just today uh, answer the door and they say, I'm just the carer. I'm just the childminder. It's a reflection of what society, I suppose, thinks of the importance of carers. I think there's a huge benefit to society if we would just acknowledge, resource, and pay people in caring professions what they duly deserve. Thanks, Thank Deirdre. Uh, Councillor Deirdre Heaney of Fianna Fáil. Uh, to the Green Party now, Councillor David Healy. David. Okay. Thank you. Uh, we're in a climate and biodiversity emergency. The, the Doyle has recognised this, and we are standing for election on the basis that we have 10 years in which to take radical action for the future of the planet, for ourselves, our own children, for future, for future generations. We need a, a, a ra rapid transition towards sustainability, um, and that's not just a challenge, it's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity for better public health in particular um, and better quality of life. So we need to adjust, change our transport systems to facilitate walking, cycling, and shifts to public transport. We need to retrofit almost every house in the, in the country. Um, and and these, these are part of the big challenges. We also, particularly in Dublin, need a, a, a system of large-scale public cost rental housing uh, in order to, to solve the, the housing crisis and homelessness crisis in our city. Okay, thanks to Councillor David Healy from the Green Party. So, um, we'll get underway with the questions now. And just to say to the candidates that I can't ask all of you every question, but we will be fair in terms of the distribution of questions um, over the course of the programme. 
Um, so I'm going to begin with, I suppose, something that's a, a national issue, um, but also a local issue, and that is of uh, violent crime and drug-related crime, which uh, unfortunately has visited our doorstep here in Dublin Bay North over the recent past. And we're going to start with um, Michael O'Brien from Solidarity People Before Profit. Michael, what, I mean, what would you do if you're elected? What would you do to, to address this situation? Well, I think the first thing to acknowledge is that the, the so-called war on drugs has been an absolute and utter failure. It was uh, former President Richard Nixon, I think, who coined uh, the phrase. But this thing of, of a law and order approach to uh, try and uh, you know, deal with the, the problems of addiction in Irish society and all Western societies uh, just has proven you know, an absolute failure. And I think I would take my inspiration from the, the more healthcare-centred and harm reduction approach uh, that we've seen in Portugal, coupled with the idea of tackling uh, this situation by destroying uh, and taking away the market from the, the big dealers through whether it's controlled availability of opiate or opiate substitutes you know, taken in, under supervision in a harm reduction environment and any other um, r radical measures like that that would actually destroy the market, alleviate the, the problems of crime that are associated with whether it's petty crime or, or major, uh, uh, major crime to go with it as well. But I think you know, my own political organisation arrived at that conclusion, I'd say, 25 years ago. I'd say it was very much ahead of the curve. It would have gone against the grain where I think people's uh, default um, you know, instinct would have been for the more law and order kind of head-on approach to try and deal with the problem. But I think people are definitely coming around that we have to, to, to tackle this in a okay. different way than has been the case. Okay. Uh, Deirdre Haney, Fianna Fáil, just ask you the same question. Two things. One, I think we need to be tougher on criminals and try and give Gardaí more powers of search and seizure where instances of uh, criminality and drugs are involved. That's the first thing. Uh, secondly, I, when I look at um, the news and broadcasts around those young people who are involved in criminality from a very young age, 16, you know, 15, 16, they were somebody's child, you know, they came into the world um, and they were exposed to criminality from a very young age. I would like to see us setting up some kind of a scheme, maybe in, in, half, of the con in half of the city, where we could target very young children who are exposed from the very, earliest, very early age to criminality. I would like to see us target five and six-year-olds and bring them into sports. I have a huge admiration for boxing. Um, we have a fund at city council level where we target uh, deprived uh, areas and deprived children or children who are exposed to criminality. We target them at the ages of 11 and 12 and attract them, uh, try and attract them into boxing clubs, local boxing clubs. But a lot of people will say that it's too late at 11 and 12 that we need to target children yeah. as young as 5 and 6 to bring them into either boxing clubs, amateur boxing or football or hurling or whatever the sport is to show them that there is positivity, they do matter. Um, and try and give them a choice and attract them into something that they can benefit from. But on the other scale, the other, the, on the other side of it, I think we need to be tougher on people who are, I suppose, preying on very young children in our communities who have just no other choice um, when they see the, the attraction of finance and money that, that, that brings them into that. But yeah. tougher, tougher on the people who are drawing them into it okay. and a focusing in of very young children uh, for a period maybe of five years to see how that can benefit the, society in cycle. terms of investment yeah. in young children's future. Okay. Aon, I'm going to finish with you on this one. 
for a new guard station at the junction of Northern Cross, there we need to see that delivered. Um, secondly, I've been calling for the last year for a Northside Task Force, just like the Northern Inner City, which will do uh, what has been suggested here, but also resource things like uh, Preparing for Life, Spear 17, things such as Deirdre just touched on there, Glynn Boxing Club, who are based in Paws in Rohini. I've gone to visit them. They've lost half the children that are involved in that boxing club because of travelling. That's the sort of thing we need to be investing in. And thirdly, to agree with Michael, we need to change drug policy. As a former drug minister, uh, I, I led the charge for obviously for the injecting centre in the, in the city, uh, city centre. But we need to realise that 70% of the drug convictions or the drug cases in our courts are for possession for personal use. Most of the drug convictions are people are who are in, are in addiction. That's a huge waste of resources that should be spent. Uh, on targeting the criminal gangs and the people who are making money out of this. So when we talk about decriminalisation, we're not talking about decriminalisation of the, of the drugs, we're talking about decriminalisation of the individual, and we have to uh, switch those resources to make sure that somebody in addiction is dealt with, not in the courtroom but in the health service, and somebody who is, who is making vast amounts of money out of this misery, they're the ones that the guards are targeting. Okay, I'm going to go to the audience now, Johnny, uh, for a question. And we have a, a question that came in earlier from uh, Conor Craven, who's also an independent candidate in this constituency as well. And uh, Conor, he's down at the back there. That's him there, the red jumper, Tony. And uh, we're just going to. Uh, I have the question here, actually. Will I ask it, Conor? Yeah, save you running around there. Now, Conor's question is to will, will, is as some of the candidates here. Uh, may have a pivotal role in forming the next government. Would they support Leo Varadkar for the position of Taoiseach based on his backpedalling and double standards as shown uh, re Senator Clifford Lee and his own choice and support of candidates Verona Murphy and Senator Noon? Uh, John Lyons, I'm going to start with you on that one. I don't think any uh, right-minded person would support uh, Fine Gael, led by Leo Varadkar, Simon Coveney, Simon Harris or whoever. The impact of the policies that Fine Gael have implemented, supported by the main opposition party, Fianna Fáil, over the last four years, and before that in a coalition government with the Labour Party. The actual real-life impacts, I mean, it's quite incredible uh, when you talk to people who are in chronic pain, waiting two and a half years for a simple procedure, um, and the health system can't give it to them in a timely fashion. Uh, you know, you have speech and language therapy assessments, uh, there's children waiting 18 months for the initial assessment, and if it's deemed that they need early intervention, they're going to be waiting another 18 to 24 months. The window is closed. The formative years of that child's uh, life uh, have gone. They've come and gone. The real-life impacts of Fine Gael, Leave Racker, I don't want to personalise it, uh, but the, the policies that they implement are vicious. And I'm saying vicious. They have, they have violent impacts on the living standards, the health, and the future prospects of hundreds of thousands of people out there. So any right-minded person who wants to see a sense of fairness and justice in this uh, society wouldn't go near Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil, Fianna Fáil with a barge pole. Seriously. Thanks, John. Um, uh, Keen, maybe the Social Democrats might have a role to play in forming a next government. And you know, um, what do you think of that question? We're certainly interested if we can get a change of direction policy participating uh, in government. But Would you support Leo Varadkar's teacher? Well, I have to agree with John on this in terms of you have to look at the policies that Fine Gael have implemented. We were just talking about crime there. Since Fine Gael came into government uh, in 2011 along with the Labour Party, the number of community uh, guards on the north side of Dublin have almost halved. I was a member of the Drugs Task Force for this area uh, for a period of about five years and saw firsthand the devastating uh, effect of the cuts 
uh, brought in by Fine Gael to local projects, uh, community projects, youth projects. And we're seeing uh, part of the, what we're seeing now in terms of violent crime is a result of those, uh, those cuts uh, brought in by Fine Gael and, and Labour at the time. So I think there's a very strong signal from the electorate that they're going to vote uh, Fine Gael out uh, at this election. Um, Deirdre Heaney, would you um, continue to support um, in the supply and confidence arrangement with Fine Gael? Well, I suppose I would prefer if that wasn't the case. Um, however, um, I'm, leader, I'm the group leader of Fianna Fáil and Dublin City Council. Uh, we're working, we're in a, a good working relationship with the Green Party, the Labour Party and the Social Democrats in terms of agreeing our budget for 2020. Uh, there's give and take on all sides. Not everybody gets what everybody wants, but I suppose the electorate decide who's going to be returned, what the numbers are. Personally, I would prefer if Fianna Fáil was leading the next government. Um, and the opinion polls are showing that Fianna Gael is, is struggling at the moment. But as people say, uh, a week is a long time in politics and there's Indeed still four is. days left. So the okay. people will decide yeah. you know, what, forms, what form the next government will take. I okay. would prefer not to be supported. I'm going to go back to the audience Fianna for another question. Uh, Rose Wall is here. Rose, how are you? You wanted to ask a question. Just don't eat until we get the microphone to you there. Thank there. you very much. So I'm the CEO of Community Law and Mediation. We provide free legal services to the community. We're based upstairs and down in Limerick. And we would see access to justice as vital to social inclusion, but it's something that's being denied to many, particularly to those on low incomes. So, for example, with civil legal aid, there's a waiting list in Dublin of 38 weeks. The uh, means test doesn't meet the current cost of living and certain cases like discrimination, employment, social welfare are excluded from its remit. So I'd just like to ask the candidates, if elected, what will they do to make our justice system more accessible? I'm going to start with Linda on that one. Linda, you're a solicitor, so you must have some ideas on this. Uh, yes, I, 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 I'm, and again, I'll answer your question from a personal perspective. Um, I believe that, uh, and I believe there's, I'm actually answering something. I, I believe that uh, certainly in, uh, there should be access to legal aid for uh, clinical negligence uh, claims. It is, costs thousands and thousands of euro to mount any kind of an action against the HSE, which means that a lot of potential wrong, uh, of wrongdoing and skullduggery is going unpunished and, and, and uh, is not being accounted for in the courts. And my understanding is that uh, Brexit may impact on this, but there was a test case being brought to Europe by a group of UK citizens uh, to uh, test as to whether or not there was a right at European level to legal aid to fund and run clinical negligence claims. I uh, would completely agree with you that the um, band, the um, income levels do need to be increased in order for people to have access to litigation services, and it's something I definitely would lobby for if elected. Thanks, uh, Linda. I'm going to ask uh, David to respond to that as well. David yeah. Healy from the Green Party. Um, one of the, the things that the Troika, when, when they were in Ireland uh, 10 years ago, uh, required and the Irish government agreed to do was to undertake reforms of the legal system in order to improve access to justice and improve, reduce the costs of, of litigation for, for all concerned. Uh, those reforms haven't happened. Uh, instead, and I'm particularly familiar with the environmental law area, uh, we now have a bill proposed by the last government which seeks to reduce access to justice for, for environmental litigation so that organizations, I've been involved 
with Friends of the Irish Environment in, uh, in, in litigation about climate action in Ireland, for example. And this bill now seeks to exclude organizations like ours simply on the basis of, of the fact that we, we don't have many members uh, from the, the protections which are currently in, in the legislation. So, uh, unfortunately, the, the, the government's approach to litigation bringing up results that they're not happy with or to the delays in the legal system itself, which are created by the legal system, not by the litigants, uh, is, to, is to seek to reduce access to justice, and, and that's really unacceptable. Okay, I have a question in on text for Aon. Um, are you prepared to go into coalition with Fine Gael if that is an option post-election, and that's from Anne O'Leary in Baldoyle? No. No. Definitely no. Okay, that's simple, straightforward. Um, we'll go back to the audience and to uh, Claire O'Connor, who has a question for the panel. Yeah, so I'm a director with Inner City Helping Homeless, um, so housing is obviously our main priority, but it's a question mainly for Deirdre Heaney from Fianna Fáil, but also anybody that might potentially end up in a coalition with them. One of the concerns I have around the, the housing policy is the emphasis on subsidising you know, developers and landlords, and the fear that that might get us back into a kind of boom-bust cycle, as opposed to an emphasis on reducing cost. So I'm looking to see what your thoughts are on that. I'm not interested in subsidising uh, landlords, sorry, so subsidising developers, is it? Is that? Yeah, so that's in the Fianna Fáil housing policy, that one of the, one of the efforts would be to subsidise developers and subsidise landlords instead of you know, an outright rent freeze. Well, so, well, I'm not aware of, of anything in the, in the manifesto that's talking about subsidising developers, but certainly in terms of uh, subsidising um, um, affordability for people who are unable to afford homes, I'm certainly in favour of that. Uh, people will be familiar with the O'Devany Garden site, where ourselves, the Green Party, the Social Democrats and the Labour Party came to an agreement, albeit not a perfect agreement, but that we would introduce affordable housing on 30% of that land. Uh, affordable rental, which is a new concept, people might be familiar with the Vienna model, and then 30% private. I think that that is a very, very positive step. A couple of my friends a few years ago, around 2006, 2005, uh, two uh, women bought uh, affordable um, housing, affordable units in Parkade Street, and they were absolutely thrilled. They're still living there, and it's the way to go. Unfortunately, we haven't built uh, an awful lot of, or in, fa in fact, any affordable housing in the last number of years. But the affordable housing scheme, in my opinion, is a really, really positive step, and it's a way to go to ensure that people are able to purchase uh, their own homes, but I'm certainly not in favour of subsidising developers, and I'm not aware of anything to that effect in the manifesto. Okay, I'm going to ask um, Keen O'Callaghan, Social Democrats, to answer that as well, please. Yeah, I, I think we need a totally different approach in terms of in terms of housing. I think the model that we've been doing for the last uh, number of decades isn't working. It's developer developer led, and developers are buying up agricultural land, farmland, getting rezoned, making a windfall and then pushing up the price of housing and renting for everybody, everybody else. So we need to be moving towards what is done in countries like the Netherlands, where the state is involved in building up public land banks. And that brings on stream a whole range of housing options for people, including a real affordable uh, purchase and real affordable rents. It takes pressure off people uh, in society, whether you're looking to buy or rent, and it takes uh, speculation uh, out of the equation. And until we do that, we're just going to be caught in the same cycle that we have been for years now of escalating prices, people having to work harder and harder uh, to make mortgage pay payments and rents. So strongly favour a complete change of direction 
uh, on housing away from developer-led and speculation-led uh, development. John, you want to come in that as well, John Lyons. You know, uh, Dublin City Council in February of 2015, uh, in order to somewhat alleviate the, the housing crisis, put to us as the elected members of the City Council uh, that we would go out to the market uh, with prime uh, parcels of public land, namely the Oscar Trainer Road, uh, literally 10 minutes from here. I know Devney Gardens been the two uh, most valuable and to leverage that asset to get private market interest interested in developing the site and in return they would get to build out the site and sell 50% of the units on the open market at unaffordable prices, completely out of the reach of people on middle income. 30% uh, would be social and 20% would be some as yet to be fully worked out affordable uh, element. Now, last October and November and Dublin City Council, unfortunately, uh, a coalition of the Social Democrats, Labour, the Greens and Fianna Fáil agreed to that proposal despite the fact that many of us said that public land should be used for public and affordable housing. Indeed, in the Dublin Agreement uh, that was hatched between those various parties, that's what they agreed to, that public land should be used for public and affordable housing. It's a public good. Um, so this is where the cynicism towards politicians comes in, that they say one thing but they're actively doing another thing. It's quite incredible. Like, it is incredible because people, when they open the door, they give you that cynical look and they say, you're all the same. And I go, yes, they are all the same. Uh, they say one thing to you at an election and then they go off and they live in a bubble on three times what 60% of workers in this country earn as a basic salary. And there's no real trust anymore uh, in relation to what politicians say, particularly around election time. And we've just had a perfect example of this. Uh, it's like, save me, but don't save me quite yet. We have the opportunity, we had the opportunity last November, and it was rejected by people to my left and to my right. We have another opportunity with the Oscar Road uh, site soon, because a preferred uh, bidder is going to be announced probably in March, and that'll be another opportunity to say, no, we can do better, we can deliver housing by state intervening, directly funding the local authorities to hire the workers, the contractors, whoever we need to build out the sites to have public and okay. affordable housing. Okay, John. Michael, I'm going to ask you just on this, I mean, just to pick up on that point, how would we pay for the housing? How would you fund the housing? Well, how was it funded in, in decades uh, past? I mean, it, this idea that, you know, uh, we cannot optimise the, the public land you know, that we own already, uh, where you don't have to pay the rest of it. Uh, I mean, it, the Quantity Surveyors uh, Association of Ireland have you know, estimated that you could deliver uh, a three-bedroom unit for, you know, in the region of 180 to 200 grand. And obviously, if you're building to, uh, to scale, you know, you can keep those uh, costs down. I mean, Dr. Rory Hernan, Maynooth University, worked out that in terms of what the government and future governments may be willing to hand out to landlords in the form of HAP over a 15-year period, you could actually you know, build vast quantities of public housing, whereas at the end of that 15-year period, if we stay on the, on the track that we're on, we'd be no further along in terms of public housing provision, but we'd have a lot of very wealthy landlords. Now, we've had a, a very acute housing crisis for the last seven years, I would say, in the sense that that's when you had the phenomenon of the new homeless uh, sp spikes in, in rental costs and so on. And the mantra from the previous uh, Fine Gael Labour government then with the, the, the current outgoing government that we've had is that in, in the right conditions, with the right nudge measures that the market will provide. Now, I think that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are intimately wedded to landlord and developer interests. A third of Fine Fáil and Fine Gael TDs 
our landlords. And frankly, if we're going to address the housing and accommodation crisis in this state uh, through mass public house building, strict rent controls, and a ban on economic evictions, those measures will not only resolve the housing crisis, but they will actually hurt the profits of landlords. They will hurt the profits uh, of developers. And that's why um, you know, the, the, the main uh, Conservative parties in this country are offering basically at best you know, incremental change, uh, private housing de de delivered at a piecemeal basis that's beyond the reach of, of most working people. That's why we have a lockdown generation of half a million young adults, 20s, 30s, sometimes Thanks, early Michael. 40s, stuck yeah. with their folks because they can't get on with life because the obstacles in front of them are insurmountable. Thanks, Michael. I know it's, a, it's, a, it's obviously a, a, a one of the key issues of the election is housing, and it's obviously a key social issue uh, as well. Um, I've got to move on. Aidan, I just want to ask you, Aon, um, you've been a TD before, and you've been in power, you've been a minister. Mm. Um, what would you say lessons you learned from the time you were in there? And if you're elected this time, what would you do differently? I think the, the lessons from, from government is that when, when somebody says something can't be done, uh, that, that often isn't the case. If the political will is there, if it's important enough, then whatever needs to be done can be done. Um, the lesson also for government is also to listen to opposition. Uh, I think most of the things that have been achieved, the big social changes in Ireland over the last five, six years, the things that we've actually all on this panel, many of us achieved together, because many of us were canvassing together, for example, in the repeal the eight referendum or marriage equality referendum, is actually when you pull aside your, your party colours, if you have something that's, that you really feel passionately about and to achieve together. So if you're in government and opposition come in with a sound idea which is ethical and has people at the centre of it, not to dismiss it just because it came from the opposition. And I think that's something that government uh, needs to learn. Uh, most of the things I managed to achieve uh, when I was a Minister of State was with the support of people in the opposition. And I think everybody in politics, regardless of the political party, genuinely has uh, you know, a decent end in mind. Uh, most people anyway, I would suggest, and that's the biggest thing I learned. Okay, thanks, Aon. Uh, Donny, we have another question from the audience. Hi, my name is Pauline O'Shaughnessy. I'm chairperson of NCU, CLG, which deals with unemployed people in the area. Um, I have actively and singularly campaigned against the uh, overbuild on the Chivers site. Um, I was also at the briefing sessions to do what's going up on the Oscar Train Road. And my question is, um, when, if, and when any of you get back into government, or your party gets into government, when are you going to rescind the decision by the government to give developers approval to build high density once they go over 101 units without consulting the people in the area in a, a real and meaningful way, and not just give the developers this carte blanche to intensify the density of population in this area when there is no resources to meet the need that will arise, such as schools, hospital, doctors, guardi, transport, and the infrastructure of the roads around and not being able to cope with that density. Okay, uh, good question. I suppose one of the um, dilemmas is that, you know, we need more housing. Every time more housing is proposed, there's objections from various parties for various different reasons. Some of them, you know, uh, obviously uh, illegitimate, some of them maybe not so legitimate. But David, you're the Green Party. What, uh, what would you do about that density? Um, that, that so I, I, I think the, the, the core problem that, that Pauline is, is referring to is the strategic housing development provision. Uh, we have county development plans and city development plans 
which go through an extensive and detailed process of public consultation and of democratic decision-making by the Council. And in those plans, we set as councillors the conditions which have to be complied with by the planning system. And what the government has done in relation to large-scale housing developments is basically said, we're not going through that system, we're not going through the local authority at all, it's going to go straight to Onboard Vanola. And so norm normally, when a planning application comes in on a large site, you'll get a planning application and you'll get the public input at that stage. You'll get further information being sought by the council, including on the basis of the knowledge that they've gained from the community's submissions, and then you'll get a decision by the council. And, and, sorry, and when the further information comes in, the community will get another opportunity to respond to that details. Then a decision is made and the community has an opportunity to appeal it to Onboard Panola. The strategic housing development process is a single application straight to Onboard Panola. There's discussion in advance between the developer, the council and the Onboard Panola, which is all in secret. The community is cut out. And then you just get one opportunity to engage. And the, and the result of that is that many details which would be fixed in a proper planning ap application Aren't, aren't fixed at all in these. Uh, and that is then, of course, leading to judicial reviews of, of the cases. We have one in Hoth, for example, where, which has been judicially reviewed, and in this, it's, that's led to the developer making a second application with a completely different access route. Looking at the access route that was granted the first time, the second time around, that's marked as the worst of the three options, and the council is saying you know, the, what the best one was. So that's a small detail, but there are many other aspects of it. And one of the core things that's, that, that's affected is the restrictions put by the, the councillors, just in terms of the, the local impacts, the sunlight impacts on neighbouring buildings, the impacts on views, the impacts on local amenities. And I'm not opposed to higher density development. I think in, in a lot of this area, we do need higher density, but it needs to be done. That doesn't mean that we ignore the rest of the planning conditions, the rest of the implications that development has in a community. Yeah. Um, Linda, I've got to come to you on that as well. Certainly, uh, on board Planola, just to echo what David said, on board Planola certainly seems to be a law on, onto its own self, and in respect of many decisions that it makes, it's contradicting uh, its own uh, inspectors' uh, reports. And I, I believe, David, I think you referred to it earlier, I, I believe the legislation you were referring to was the Housing and Planning Act 2019, which seeks to now limit and restrict the ability of uh, a citizen or organisations to uh, take the uh, initiate the judicial review proceedings against a uh, on board planola, and all the court can examine is the process whereby on board planola made the decision. They don't. The court doesn't have any jurisdiction into the merits. Of, of that decision. So I think we are in, in big, big trouble uh, on this issue. And the furthermore, which I don't think it's been referred to yet, a lot of these new developments that are now springing up, you see part the development just be before, just after Clon Griffin and before uh, Port Marnock, a real eyesore in my, in, in my opinion, and another development in, in Rohini. And I'm, I'm aware of the development in Kulak that Pauline was referring to, but I'm not sure of the in, in detail of what the purpose of that will be. But these blocks are being uh, constructed, and in some cases they are being purchased by one investment company, who are then moving in and renting all, all of the units out. And one apartment block in uh, Dublin Bay North, I believe, has been sold to one tech company for their, for their employees. So this is... We, we, and additionally, I am seeing cases of 
second-hand homes being purchased by the same companies. We could have a serious contraction of supply if this is not addressed now. Okay, um, I've got to finish on housing with, with a word from Aon. SHD legislation is a disaster. It's anti-democratic. It's caused a problem in St. Anne's, it caused a problem in Hope at the Bailey Court site, and it's caused a problem in, in, uh, in Chivers. Just to explain Chivers, the councillors here rezoned the Chivers because they were mindful of the need for housing, and they did the right thing in rezoning that site. Developers said it would be 350 homes, and the councillors went with that. But of course, typically, the developer then comes in, puts an application for 495 units in 10-storey blocks. Not only that, but the SHD is going to get worse. And by the way, the two um, judicial reviews in St. Anne's and Hope were successful. So obviously there's something seriously wrong with what's happening in Bor Panala. But as has been said earlier, it's going to get worse because government are now saying that if you're going to be a company, which people sometimes uh, form themselves into companies in order to indemnify themselves, you have to be in, in, in situ for three years and you have to have 100 members. So you're ripping up the entire rule book, you're handing it to developers, and communities are left wondering, what, uh, what kind of input do we have? We are building a new, a basically new town in the Northern Fringe. There's going to be 50,000 people living there. And I'm all in favour of, of accommodation and housing and high quality housing. But we had to fight for a new secondary school there, which was open last September. I've already spoken about the new garden station that we need. Kilbarrick Fire Station say that they have no capacity to deal with high rise fires. They don't have the capacity to deal with high rise fires, and they have one fire engine. So if you're going to build the housing, put in the infrastructure, but don't rip up the rule book and hand it to developers at the same time. Okay. Um, just one second, we get a, um, Donny, get the microphone to you because we won't uh, hear you at home. Sorry, yeah. it's Pauline O'Shaughnessy again. If and when ye or a collection of you or your parties get into government, will you rescind that piece of legislation which gives a carte blanche to developers to do what they're doing? Okay. And we, we... I am not against housing, but we need homes, not rented places where people cannot build communities out of them because they don't know how long they're going to be there. Okay, Pauline, they've all said yes. So thanks for that question and thanks for your response. I, I would say we have to uh, rescind the guidelines issued by the Minister for Housing, the outgoing okay. Minister for Housing, in December of 2018 because they've completely undermined our development plan and okay. have a, a negative impact as well. Thanks. So as long with the SHD. Okay, well, I'm going to move on to a question uh, uh, in on the text line. Um, as, uh, from uh, Lasanne Oedrago, I hope I've pronounced her name correctly, and it's, uh, Lasanne is the chairperson of the Africa Centre. As a citizen of migrant background, my question to the candidates is, what would they do for me and my family and people of African descent to feel safe and included in Irish society? We now belong but feel Unwelcomed. And Keane, I'm going to come to you first on that. Keane O'Callaghan from Social Democrats. Yeah, I, I think there's a huge amount that we can do to support uh, migrants and members of the African uh, community uh, in Ireland. Everybody should have a right to feel uh, safe uh, in Irish society. Uh, I was uh, very involved, uh, before I was involved in electoral politics, I was very involved in uh, work around uh, supporting uh, migrants uh, in Ireland. So. I mean, one of the things that strikes me that needs to be done is people who are living here, working here for a long amount of time, and we encounter this in the election, we're meeting them on the doorsteps, they could be living here, paying tax, contributing to society for 10 years, they don't have a vote in these elections. So I would favour uh, for long-term residents here to have a vote uh, in general elections uh, so that they have a full say. It's, it's quite, when you meet people on the doors, it's almost embarrassing when they're like saying to you, well, you know, I've been living here for 15 years, but 
Uh, I, I, I don't have a say in these elections, and they're obviously interested. So that's one of the things that I, I would like to see us do, to give uh, migrants who are uh, long-term residents in Ireland more of a, a say uh, in, in decision-making in Ireland. And, and what do you think you could do to help them make them feel safer? Yeah, I, I, I think it's the... I mean, I think one of the, the issues is leadership from people in, in politics, uh, and that's very important at the moment. There is, uh, because of the lack of investment in, in public services, there can be, uh, you know, competition uh, in, in terms of interests. And we need to... People in politics need to show leadership on this uh, rather than, uh, you know... Uh, you know, anything that you know uh, creates a, the opposite, opposite kind of impression. Yeah, okay, yeah. Michael O'Brien. Yeah, I would add to that, that um, you know, any gains that are made in terms of uh, public housing, um, gains that are made in terms of workers' rights, are, are gains that will benefit uh, you know Irish and, and migrant uh, communities alike. But I think the other thing as well is that we just have to acknowledge, although thankfully it's not represented uh, here tonight at the debate that there is a, a cohort of uh, candidates right across the state who have taken their cue from Peter Casey in the presidential elections who are seeking to, uh, precisely to uh, mimic you know, what we've seen across uh, in Britain and continental Europe and try and build a base for far-right and racist politics uh, in this country. It is fueling attacks. We've seen them at direct, uh, our proposed direct provision centres in like, Mohill, in uh, Donegal, Ruski, I think, in County Longford. And I think, you know, besides legislation, there's also, you know, I'm in favour of community-based uh, responses to uh, racist prov provocations, uh, the likes of which we've seen in Balbriggan, where there was a community-based mobilisation to demonstrate opposition to candidates that are not even going to bother to name, frankly, but who are, who are seeking to exploit. And I really hope that they, they, they all get trounced uh, next Saturday, because I think it's, it's to our benefit that we, we don't have a significant electoral far right in, in this country, and, and long may it last. Thanks, Michael. Um, we're going to come back to the audience now, and Hugh ha has a question for us. I just wanted to come back to housing again for a moment, if I may. My name is uh, Hugh Brennan from O'Coolan Co-Housing Alliance, and um, we are delivering some affordable housing just over the road in um, uh, Ballymun. And um, <clears throat> I think that it may not be generally understood, but that affordable houses for affordable purchase um, are actually cost-neutral. So we. We look to get the land at a heavily reduced price from the local authority and we look for them to waive the development levies. And that's what Dublin City Council are doing and in fair, fairness to them, it, they are supporting us. But for every house that we sell, 50,000 of that goes back to the Exchequer through the likes of VAT, um, PAYE, PRSI, stamp duty and all of that. So it is actually cost neutral. It's not actually costing the, um, the state anything. And I just would love for the prospective TDs to actually be aware of that. And then if you also look at affordable rental. Affordable rental not only is cost neutral, affordable rental um, makes a contribution towards the Exchequer over time because over the first 25 years you pay back your capital, then you have the asset, and, but your rent doesn't decrease, and you're building up your, um, your, your, your asset. And then the final element to the whole public housing debate is uh, social rental. But in, in our country, unfortunately, we have this false barrier where that if you're earning, say, up to around 40,000, you're entitled to, afford to social housing. If you're earning above that, you just drop. You're, 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 you're entitled to nothing. I would remove that completely, that false barrier. I would introduce 
um, a universal affordable rental, right the way up if you're earning 10,000 or even up to 80,000, you may require a subsidy. And if you require the subsidy, it's a variable subsidy, and that will actually reduce the cost of delivering social housing as well. So you don't need the absolute billions that you're talking about, you just need to think about what you're doing and use the money much more effectively. Okay, Dan, thanks. I'm, I'm not going to come back to the candidates on housing uh, again. Uh, I have one more question here from the audience at the moment from Carl, and uh, Carl, you want to, to ask the candidates a question as well. Hello. Um, just, sorry, just to see all the candidates. My name is Carl Tour. I'm the CEO and Clinical Director of Northside Counselling Service. And for those of you who don't know, it's just two minutes down the road. Just some background. Northside Counselling Service has serviced this community for over 30 years. We have provided over 100,000 counselling hours at a donation basis only. There's no cost. Every year we provide 4,000 counselling hours. We've also trained 200 people to become professional accredited counsellors. Most of them local, most of them women, and most of them have got into employment. We're very likely to close. The Troika was mentioned. Our funding was cut by 50%. It has never been restored. The only reason we're still open is because we did run that professional counselling course. We built up small amounts of reserves. To replace us, would cost the state, if they were to run it themselves, over 600,000. I'm signing our service level agreement with the HSE on Wednesday for 30,000. I have a question. Oh, by the way, when there was the major um, economic crash, Northside councillors shouldered a lot of the services that were the hospitals, etc., closed down and Northside councillors are shouldering a lot of the trauma in the community right now. Nobody has asked, do we need any help? So question, if elected, would you be interested in supporting community-based counselling? Would you allow us to close? Thank you. Thanks, Carl. Um, Deirdre Heaney, I'm going to ask you that well, first. Uh, that, uh, th thank you, Carl. And it goes back to what I said in initially uh, about caring professions. And you mentioned that most of the counsellors that you have trained are mainly women. In my experience, most of the people who are in caring professions, like counsellors, are very under-resourced and underpaid. I visited the, an early learning centre in uh, Edinburgh last Monday all of the people who are in the caring of those people are women and they're hugely under-resourced, underpaid and they're doing immeasurable work to benefit the people in our society, obviously like the people who you're training. So absolutely, um, from where I'm coming from, we need to acknowledge as a society the importance of the work that the people that you are talking about are providing to our society and for an awful long time as far as my experience goes I just think as a society we hugely undervalue the benefits of people in caring professions and that includes people who are counseling individuals who for one reason or another need assistance so any Hold on, hold on Carl I, I, so 
I Carl would, wants I to know would, what I would you do? I would absolutely, you know, try and fund and, and lobby for funding and resources okay. for people in that I think, situation. I think we have an answer there. Linda, what would you do specifically? I'll, I'll keep this very short and it may be controversial, but I'm going to say it regardless. Um, we've seen a, a 20 uh, million uh, cut in funding for disability services. Um, we're seeing lengthy waiting lists in this area for speech and language uh, therapy with 200,000 children waiting for, uh, for, for therapy services nationwide and well over 2,400 in this area. I'm going to say it, we're paying 5.5 billion a year to non-governmental organisations in this country. It needs to be looked at. We need to see which organisations are delivering, which aren't, and the ones that are directly servicing the immediate health welfare needs of citizens need to be prioritised from that, that, that pool now. Okay, Aon, would you fund it if you get back in? Uh, of, course I w uh, of course I would, and I think we need to talk about the nature of trauma, the nature of pain, uh, and the, nat the, the nature of, of what you're dealing with day in, day out, and, and properly acknowledge it. There's been a huge amount of trauma caused over the last 10 years. People talk to me about homelessness. I don't think there's any... Uh, people sometimes think that the answer to homelessness is just building homes. It is, but it's also there's a huge amount of trauma that's been built up in the child if you spend a period in homelessness that's going to come out uh, in years to come. I will say this much though, please don't listen to anybody who says you can fund these services and reduce your taxes. Please don't listen to a snake oil salesman of a politician who comes to your door and says, I'm going to reduce your tax, I'm going to reduce your, in reduce your income tax, your USC, and by the way, I can also resource housing, health, education, counselling services, because it just cannot be done. Now, there are people on this panel who are willing to say, we will not do that. We will not stand on your doorstep and say, I'm going to reduce your tax, and I'm also going to spend on stuff. I think we have to be much more honest and say, there's a choice to be made in Irish society. If you want your tax lowered, there's people you can vote for. But if you want services to be protected, saved, and enhanced, just like your counselling service, well, then there's other people you can vote for, but you can't do the two. Okay, we've just about a uh, little over half an hour to go, and um, if people are listening in uh, on 90.3 on Near FM, or if you're listening on near.ie, you can uh, still get involved. We're getting lots of questions in via Twitter and on the text line. The text line is 87 69 That's 87 69 You'll get us on Twitter at near FM, and uh, we'd be delighted to take your question for the candidates. Donny, we have another question there from our studio audience here in Hi, Pacific my name Centre. is um, Anthony Keegan here. I'm here on behalf of the families of the Stardust disaster. I'm a bit disappointed that none of the sitting TDs are here tonight, but that doesn't surprise me. They will knock your door, they promise the sun, moon and stars, and then they let you down. That's the political will. But I want to ask the panel here a question. If they are elected to Dáil Éireann, right, can they give a pledge, one, to ensure that the new inquest into the Stardust fire will be human rights compliant, to uphold the commitment of the previous government uh, that all necessary resources will be made available to the coroner for the new inquest, and to work with the Justice for the 48 Relatives group to ensure that their voices are heard at all stages of this process. 
Thanks, uh, Antoinette. Um, David Healy. Thanks, Antoinette. I think we, we all got a, a letter today from, from Michael uh, 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 O'Sullivan from your organisation with, with exactly those requests, and I absolutely agree with those three. They're, they're very reasonable, and uh, I can commit to that. Okay. Michael O'Brien. Absolutely. Uh, I, the, there's no uh, ask from the Stardust families that should go unheeded by any candidates or public representatives uh, in Dublin Bay North. I say my main concern would be is that if the next government includes Fianna Fáil that you can imagine that there, there will be attempts to, uh, to resile on what commitments that have already been made uh, by this government. So yes, absolutely, I support the demands of the families. Kian. I support uh, the demands of the families 100% and I have to add that there is a huge issue that we need to face uh, in Ireland around fire safety uh, and in building defects, particularly about uh, apartments and timber frame developments that were built during the Celtic Tiger years. We, we know at this stage that a large number of developments are defective. We know that there's a risk that a fire breaks out, there's going to be a disaster. We know that the individuals who've, who've bought those homes are left uh, trying to find a solution and the developers have walked away because there isn't proper uh, accountability for developers on that. So we need to make sure, whoever is elected, we need to make sure that we face up to that problem and that going forward there's proper independent inspection of buildings with respect to fire safety and that this uh, business of developers uh, hiring their own people to sign off uh, on their, their developments has to, has to stop. Uh, we should have learnt that uh, in Ireland a long time ago and we should have learnt that as well uh, after the Grenfell disaster and it hasn't been learnt and that has to happen. Okay, I, th I presume all the other candidates would, would, would agree with that. Yes. Um, yes. I have a, 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 a on text here from uh, John and Rahini. Uh, the government said that the economy is healthy, but in the next few days, secondary school teachers, childcare providers, and CE supervisors will go on strike. What would you do to ensure that the wealth filters down to the ordinary citizens? I'm going to start with Linda McAvoy on that. Independent. Well, <coughs> firstly, um, I would I would propose, um, and it's. I'm sure Aon would agree that we'll probably have the view that it's impractical, but I think we need to see not just a reduction in the universal social charge as promised by Sinn Féin, that it would only kick in after, I think, 30,000. We need to work towards abolishing uh, that particular tax altogether. It was brought in uh, when the bailout deal was done with, with the Troika. We now need to see, I think the successive governments have become reliant on that particular charge and it cripples low income earners. I'm very concerned in the, in the um, taxation proposals from each of the main uh, parties uh, in this election that there's very, very, very little um, uh, attention being paid to the middle income earners, say anybody of between say 17, 18,000 and around, and around 40,000. There's no proposals uh, to increase their particular, their particular take home pay uh, whatsoever. And that's a great concern to me. But I mean, you say there that you would abolish the USA and I mean to take Aon's point from earlier, um, which was, you know, don't believe the snake oil salesperson that can tell you on one hand, I can lower your tax, and on the other hand, I can give you more services. It, it's just, it's hard to square that circle. I mean, how, how would you square that circle? I think we're going to have to make savings in other sectors. Any okay. ideas? Uh, as I said, I think the NGO 5.5 billion needs to be looked at. Um, other than that, I don't have any further suggestions this evening, except to say that I do think there needs to be more focus on expanding uh, the tax-free allowances for the middle-income sector, which would include the teachers they're talking about. There's no proposals from any of the major parties for that group. 
Okay, uh, John Lyons, what would you do? Well, look, there's a whole, there's various sectors of the, the economy and society that are struggling. Uh, teachers, childcare workers, uh, the CE supervisors, the home help uh, care workers as well. Uh, there's talk of strike action there. Uh, I just think there's a fundamental uh, inequality in terms of the distribution of income and wealth uh, in this country. The top 10% of households, they're the richest 10%, have over 50% of the wealth. They uh, own 90% of all the land. Uh, and meanwhile, there's 70% you know, of workers earn 40,000 euro or less a year. So we need to strengthen the trade union movement for one. We need to allow workers to uh, organize and collectively bargain. Uh, I think that way you will see workers uh, pay increase and actually fight back against the imbalance that we currently have, which is in complete and utter favor of capital over labor, to the point where the two minions of capital, uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, uh, but Fianna Fáil are right now, or were up until recently, uh, using public money to launch a legal case uh, against the European Commission's fi uh, finding that the Apple Corporation owes us 14 billion euro in back taxes. You can't make this stuff up. Meanwhile, uh, whole sectors of society are struggling uh, to make ends meet uh, month to month, week to week, day to day. Um, so that's, that's just, to my mind, is uh, abhorrent, um, but it is revealing of the kind of attitude that those two parties have in terms of the governance of this country. So we have to push back against that. And hopefully this election, I think, will send a strong message from all those people out there who want to see change, that we will see a diminution in the influence of both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, and those of us who are serious about radical change uh, will increase in number. Um, Michael O'Brien from Solidarity People for Profit. Um, what, what would you do to help the teachers that are going on strike? Well, um, I think uh, I'm glad workers' rights has come up as, as a topic uh, at last. I mean, I think that there's a massive cost of living crisis experienced by low and middle income workers. That what's been on offer in the so called recovery phase has been typically single digit, low single digit pay rises year on year, which don't meet the accommodation, childcare costs, and all the rest of it. I think a particular injustice was done to public service workers in the course of the crisis, starting with the pension levy, two-tier pay, which is what's bringing the teachers uh, out tomorrow, uh, as well as the universal social charge, which affected all workers, which was introduced, don't forget, as a, as a temporary uh, employment levy, I think it was called uh, at the time. I mean, unfortunately, the, the, the parameters of the, of the debate about where we get the money from need to be broadened. There is enormous wealth and economic activity in Irish society, which is untaxed, are undertaxed and never really features properly in the national discourse. Corporation profits, financial transactions, employers' PRSI contributions, for example, which in Ireland are among the lowest in, in the Western uh, world. I mean, you know, there is wealth there, obviously retained wealth of the millionaires. We know that the 17 billionaires in Ireland, like the, the spend on public services as a percentage of GDP in Ireland is far, far lower than Western European uh, comparators. And yet it's always back to the PAYE taxpayer uh, uh, sector. So I firmly believe that uh, workers have the right to force the pace of real pay increases, public and private sector workers. So I wish the teachers tomorrow all the best. And by the way, you know, the recruitment and retention crisis we're experiencing, not just in education but in healthcare as well, is, is intimately linked to all the impositions that were placed upon public sector uh, uh, workers. So like, uh, we all, as users of public services, health and education, have a real stake in the success of the teachers and childcare workers uh, who are going out uh, protesting uh, on Wednesday. Thanks, Keen. Uh, Michael, sorry. Um, Aon, I just want to ask you, I have a, another question in here from Debbie uh, in uh, Beaumont. Um, Debbie says she was checking the electoral register online and wasn't there 
though she voted, uh, was registered and voted in the last local elections. And uh, I found out this has happened to other people in the area as well. What would you do if elected to guarantee that everyone is entitled to their vote and not randomly unregistered? Can that actually happen, or how does that happen? I'd be, uh, well, I, I, I did hear about that before. I mean, the problem is that we have a system where local authorities are in charge of the, of the electoral register, and that can change, their practices can change from, from, from local authority to local authority. In this constituency, you have two different local authorities. You have Fingal County Council, you have Dublin City Council. So if, she has, if her, if her uh, mandate has been taken away from her, that's a very serious uh, serious situation. So uh, she should definitely go and check the register.ie. Um, she may be on a supplementary register, but um, I, I think a tightening up of, of a register is needed. But I would also suggest something along the line of what Keen has said about people who are here a long time. But we definitely need to talk about the, uh, those people who are, who are Irish citizens who live abroad or live in the north who need to have their, 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 their franchise res uh, respected in order to participate in democracy here. I think if you've been forced away from this country because of various different reasons, economically or otherwise, or if you live in the northern part of this country, you should be able to vote in presidential elections, you should be able to vote in, in, uh, in referendum at the very least. Uh, and there is a proposal to ch change our constitution to facilitate that, and, and we would absolutely support that. Okay, two questions in uh, one, on, one on Twitter. Local elections, it's the same register we're using. She doesn't seem to be there. Um, two, two questions uh, in, on text, one on text, one on Twitter, uh, to do with uh, abortion services. So, Deirdre, I'll ask you, as soon as I'm here beside you, uh, would you support further liberalisation of Ireland's abortion laws, for example, increasing the 12-week limit on a woman's right to choose? No, I wouldn't. Okay. Linda? Um, no, I, I wouldn't either, and uh, that's one of the issues that I have heard raised in my canvassing, even though I came to the, to the election in quite short notice. Um, it has been raised, I have been asked that several times, would I, I wouldn't, I, I do, I, I, I'm not a staunch pro-life of the extreme wing, uh, but the answer is, to, would I, no, is no. Yeah. Uh, David Healy from the Green Party, what would uh, your position be? No, I wouldn't. My, my party um, may take a different view when it, when it comes to the discussion, so we, we may have discussions about whether I abstain or exactly how it's handled, but uh, we don't have ourselves a policy seeking further liberalisation. Okay. In and the other question is, would the candidates vote to remove the three-day wait period before a woman can access abortion care? John? I think um, anyone who needs to access an abortion should be able to do it without any barriers whatsoever. So indeed, remove the three-day. Um, there are other issues in terms of uh, just accessing healthcare more generally, but women's full reproductive rights have to be respected and enhanced in the years to come. And we are going to have a review um, within the next two years. So we need to ensure uh, that we have as many pro-choice uh, candidates elected as possible because the repeal campaign was a significant social movement and it achieved the removal of the, that odious uh, Eighth Amendment from the Constitution but the work is yet to begin really uh, to ensure we have to be on constant watch because we've seen the rollback uh, in many other countries so we have to be vigilant in this regard. Um, Michael O'Brien. Yeah, the repeal of the Eighth Amendment was a massive conquest uh, for women and pregnant people uh, in this country but yet there were still vestiges of paternalism in how the law has been framed, particularly the three-day waiting uh, period. So I would you know, fully support getting rid of that you know, as a future 
amendment, but also look at uh, the provision in our hospitals up and down the state. We want the National Maternity Hospital to have you know, those, those facilities available, but also uh, GP access as well. I, I believe, and my party believes as well, that the future intake of healthcare professionals, nurses and doctors, should not be able to avail of a conscience clause. That should be phased out uh, over time. Uh, you know, so that it's again to further destigmatise what is uh, women's healthcare, in my view. Okay, uh, Keane, you in favour of the three-day? Uh, I, I, would, I would vote to remove it. I'm pro-choice, yeah. and I think we need to bring in uh, legislation to, for exclusion zones uh, outside hospitals to prevent uh, protests. Hey, on your view? Um, I, 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 I would agree. I'm a little bit. I'd be a little bit taken aback. Uh, by some of the comments, I mean, if we have a, a Fianna Fáil government which is supported by the Green Party, um, in, in this instance, we're going to, we're going, we're re, we will possibly have uh, a re-emergence of, of a battle over this, even though the people have, have very uh, explicitly stated their, their, their views on it. These, these, these things are hard won, uh, these changes, uh, they're hard won. Uh, and they were hard won very recently. Now, I'm, I'm quite happy for people to change their minds in certain situations uh, and for their views to, uh, uh, to be reformed. I, I remember Roisin Shortall uh, didn't support the X case legislation because she had a pro-life point of view at that time, and she's since changed her view. So we need politics to allow the capacity for people to change their position, uh, and I'm all for that. Uh, but I would caution people that if this is important to you, important to your family, important to your daughter, uh, or to your wife or to anybody you love in your, in your life, um, you know, don't throw away what was hard won by supporting potentially a government that's going to roll back on it. Okay, we're going back to the audience, and uh, Donny, you've got a, a question there as well. Okay, Margot Hannan from the Save Kushla campaign. Um, the largest respite centre in Ireland was closed before Christmas with a capacity and a demand for up to 10,000 bed nights for people with disabilities. It is the second respite centre closed in recent months by a Section 39 organisation, namely Irish Wheelchair Association. There are more than 640,000 people with disabilities who are voters nationally, and this number is rising, while respite supply has decreased by 16,317 bed nights in 2020, according to the HSE National Service Plan. Family carers save the state 10 billion per year without adequate respite. What are your policies on the introduction of legislation to provide a statutory basis for home care, namely urgently giving full-time carers a right to a carer's needs assessment and 20 days respite each year? Okay, I'm going to start with Keane on that. Keane O'Callaghan. Yeah, and, and firstly, I mean, just to say, I, I myself and Social Democrats fully support a disability rights, uh, rights-based approach uh, to disability and to care, and uh, which includes home care, so we, we fully support that. I take particular issue with what Linda was talking about earlier, about uh, the money being spent uh, on Section 39 community and voluntary uh, organisations. The reality in this country at the moment now is that if it wasn't for, for what was done by the voluntary sector for, for Section 39 organisations, disability organisations and all the rest, we would have no services at all for people who need support. The problem actually is that those services are effectively being provided uh, for the state on the cheap. We need to be putting more into them and we need more state-based service rather than rela relying on uh, the community and voluntary sector. So there's nothing strikes you stronger than when you're, you're meeting people in the doors and they're telling you uh, about the care that they give their family members but that they are absolutely struggling to get any respite at all, often so they can spend some time uh, with their other, other children and they're looking just for a little bit of support uh, and they're not getting it. So we need to be investing uh, more in 
and it needs to be on a rights-based uh, approach. We've got to go to uh, Councillor David Healy, Green Party, on, on the same question. I mean, it, it, it's coming back to exactly the same, the same issue that, 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 that Carter was referring to. And uh, I, I think we do need to recognise the work done by the community organisations, the voluntary organisations. I think we need to recognise that often they do the work better than, than many state organisations simply because of the way they have come from the grassroots, the way that they know the needs that they're responding to. And I, I think it's, it's, it's quite obvious, you know, Keane said it was done in the cheap. I mean, it, it's a lot more cost effective in, in, in many times than, than when the, the state kind of t takes over providing the services. That's not to say that there's not need for some oversight and that every organization is perfect. Um, but I, I don't think we should, in, under any circumstance, say that there's a problem that these quangos are getting all this money. Um, there isn't. They're, they're doing an excellent job for the most part, and they should be funded much better. And, you know, the Cushla Centre, the respite care, the, the counselling services, they're the, the kind of examples of the services which we know how, how badly they're needed. And uh, we know the impact then when the, when the funding isn't made available. Okay, I have another question um, uh, on text from Patricia in Clontarf, and um, we needed to get around to the health service at some point. Ireland has the longest hospital waiting lists in the European Union. What would you do if elected to solve that? Deirdre Hina, Fianna Fáil. What would Fianna Fáil do to solve the um, bed crisis and the health crisis that we, we hear so much about? Well, I suppose the three things that are being proposed uh, to address the initial, I suppose, backlog is one, uh, to target resources at frontline staff and A&E, uh, two, to lift the nursing embargo, and three, to expand the National Treatment Purchase Fund. I think it's uh, a, a few years ago when we had a situation where waiting times were three months and six months, waiting times now for elective surgeries and elective um, procedures are 18 months and 24 months. So I suppose the initial proposals are to increase the um, National Treatment Purchase Fund so it will ease those huge waiting lists. I have um, come across a lot of people over the last uh, two and a half, three weeks where children in particular um, and young adults are waiting for up to 18 months to get an appointment uh, for elective surgeries and for elective procedures. So the initial, I suppose, plan is to do those three things. Michael, would you use the national uh, the purchase no, treatment fund as a, as a way to do it? We, we heard this on the Divergent TV debate uh, last Thursday. Michal Martin uh, banging on about the national treatment purchase fund, which was introduced by I think the, the Fianna Fáil PD government, as it was at the time. The national treatment purchase fund, like private health care, is predicated on a failing public health care system. In other words, that uh, we have a, a public health care system that is going to fail, and therefore we have the separate... Uh, budget that's going to uh, you know, enrich uh, private medicine uh, where people can divert. It's like the, 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 the healthcare version of the HAP, if you know what I mean. Whereas, uh, you know, the question you know, has to be posed, how was it that in Britain in the late 1940s, after a world war, they managed to fund, through progressive taxation, a single-tier public healthcare system free uh, at the point of use. And they never outlawed private medicine in, in Britain in the late 1940s when the NHS was created, but there was a realisation, even amongst the better off, that they weren't able to uh, obtain anything privately uh, that, that couldn't be obtained uh, uh, publicly. And here we are 70 years later uh, in Ireland uh, with this hybrid system of a, of a failing public system, uh, you know, replete with, with you know, long waits and accident and emergency 
uh, waiting lists uh, where, you know, for multiple years and, uh, and, 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 and private medicine, which many people, against their better judgment, are pushed into taking out, and the National Treatment Purchase one, which Fianna Fáil still thinks is, is a great thing. I don't think it's a great thing. Linda, do you think it's a great thing? Um, <clears throat> well, I think just to answer the question, you can't clear waiting lists and you can't clear the, you can't solve the trolley crisis unless you look at the very end of, of the chain. And we need significant investment in post-acute rehabilitation facilities and clinical, community-based uh, clinical facilities. Some of them were built uh, and they have rooms which are actually signs on them saying physiotherapy, uh, occupational therapy, speech therapy, and there's broken furniture lying in them. It, if, we, if patients at the end of the chain are treated in the way in which the facilities were set up for, they're going to go into home care or into long-term care or go home or be cured much, much quicker. That's not happening. As long as you're not clear, and there are many, many uh, patients in the, po in the um, post-acute facilities that are languishing there for 12 months or more uh, who need treatment and who need rehabilitation, and then they're stuck there and there's nowhere for them to go. You, you have to clear the end as well as the, the start and the middle. It can't just be looking at any one part of the chain. You must look at the end as well. Okay, you're listening to Near FM, our special live debate in advance of the elections on Saturday next, the 8th of February. We're live on the radio, 90.3 Near FM, and also online at near.ie. And we're here till 9 p.m. And we also have a live studio audience here at the Northside Civic Centre on Bunratty Road in Coolock. We're just going to go to the audience now, and Donny has a another gentleman with a question. Yes, I've been around for quite a lot of uh, general elections, quite a few of them, and this is the most promising one I have seen yet. We've been promised everything, but nobody seems to recognise the, the elephant in the room at the state pension. It was sanitised from the old age pension, and it's going to affect every, nearly everybody here, sooner or later. Now, we've been promised this, that, and the other. We know it's not sustainable at the present rate. It takes six people walking to support the social welfare system. In 10 or 20 years' time, it may be down to two. Now, how are you going to fund the state pension? Okay, that question also actually came in on text from Mary and Priorswood as well. Aon, how, how are we going to fund the state pension yeah, when we all need it? Yeah, well, I, I've already, spo already spoken about the taxation base. And if we start believing people who want to erode the taxation base, well, then we have to expect that services won't be, won't be, uh, be able to provide it or they won't be able to provide for, for, for uh, our, our future needs. Uh, there are people who are saying we want to abolish the USC, which would cost $4 billion. We, the, the crisis that was caused here 10 years ago was, yes, it was bank-related, but only about 16% of our debt is bank-related. Most of it is because spending, uh, we, we were taxing at an unsustainable rate on taxation, a taxation base that wasn't sustainable, and it collapsed. Currently... Currently, we are over-reliant on cooperation tax. And yet still in this election, any amount of political parties will tell you that we don't need USC, we don't need property tax, a carbon tax is wrong, etc., etc., etc. Now, no, taxation is not popular. I know people don't like it, and often it can be perceived to be unfair and can be unfair. But things have to be paid for, and the future has to be paid for. 
So our, our view on the pension age, and we were the, I believe we were the first party to say it last November, is 66. We don't believe it should be introduced to 67 or 68, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we can get rid of all these taxation measures and invest in the future or the present, because as I said already, we can't. Okay, Ed, I want to ask David Healy that question as well. I mean, at, at the moment we have kind of very complicated and, and parallel systems. We have contributory pensions and we have non-contributory pensions. Social Justice Ireland recommends that we move towards a universal pension system. Um, we would like to see that as part of a universal basic income so that there is, there is one approach to, um, to, to support and that it's a universal support so that we, you know, the basic income approach says that everybody gets a basic income and then that would be at a higher level at, 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 at pension, pension age. Um, society, socially, I think that's the kind of commitment that we need, um, not to try to, to break up society into different, different elements and, and, uh, and, and fund them separately and to put people through means testing and, and you know, various other competing conditions. Um, and we need to make a commitment to, to funding that. Our, our preference for, for, for funding and where increased funding is needed is for taxation on, on resources uh, and a site value tax on, on land, and that, that would be on all land, including the undeveloped land, zoned land, um, and, and that should bring in a substantial amount of money, because as it stands, our, our property tax only affects householders uh, and businesses and doesn't affect uh, people who hold land empty. Okay, David. Uh, Keen O'Callaghan, I'll ask you the same question. What's, what's the Social Democrats' position on pensions? Yeah, well, just a couple of, couple of points there to make. So, firstly, just to say absolutely in what David was talking there about universal pension, and in terms of private pensions, there is something that needs to be done there because at the moment, people in private pensions, you're paying out a huge amount in fees that the funds are taking out of your, out of your pension. So having a, a state uh, scheme for you to contribute to instead to reduce the fees being taken out is, is definitely a way to go. In, in terms of the pension age, uh, I, we, we're supporting the Stop 67 campaign that, that SIP2 are running, so to keep it at the, the current age. We think the contracts need to be aligned with when people actually retire. So this business of people being forced to stop working at 65 and having no provision or having to sign on, that needs to go. Also, I mean, I was talking to someone the other night who uh, is forced in his job to finish work at 60 and he would like to be able to work for longer just to be able to build up some income. So we need to be supporting people in terms of flexibility who are in jobs where they would be able to work, they want to work longer uh, and they're not able to. But it's absolutely, uh, as Aon said, that we can't be supporting uh, different services and pensions if we're going down the cutting tax route. That does not work. And one of the most irresponsible things that some of the, the parties have been doing over the years is promising effectively tax cuts and increases in current spending out of our corporation tax receipts. That's not sustainable. We don't know when they're going to run out. They should only be used for investing in infrastructure, which then is a way of us guaranteeing a good economic return for us into the future. Okay, I'm going to uh, move on now to transport because we haven't spoken about transport um, this evening and uh, time is never our friend when we get into uh, a discussion. So uh, in terms of transport, Dave from Rohini uh, was on the text line to ask the candidates what are they going to do for local people? Uh, he says darts southbound every morning are packed. Um, new housing developments obviously adding to the strain on the transport, he says. So what would candidates do uh, for local people. Um, John Lyons, what would you do? Uh, yeah, like you're seeing this right across the city at the moment uh, in terms of planning applications and some of the issues that were raised earlier with the strategic housing development. 
The big concern uh, when you attend any of the local meetings uh, is in relation to traffic. I mean, it's quite incredible. The roads are just so congested, so we need to have a modal shift um, out of the car and into public transportation. Uh, we really do, because people, uh, because house prices in the city are, are extortionate, people are uh, moving further and further away to Drada, Mullingar, the south of Cavan, uh, for instance, and a lot of people are dependent upon their car because uh, the transportation system over the decades really hasn't been adequately funded. So we have to fund it properly. I would suggest, as a start, that we at least increase the Dublin bus fleet by 150, back up to where it was in 2009, um, and that we do introduce uh, for pedestrian and cycling safe infrastructure, and that we spend 20% of the transportation budget on that. We need to get people walking, cycling, taking public transport, because this uh, modal dependency on the car is just completely unsustainable. It's so harmful to the environment in terms of our CO2 emissions. And we have to, to grasp it because it's impacting uh, people's lives in so many different ways. So again, it's like everything else here, the public health system, uh, community counselling, uh, housing. Everything needs to be, we need to prioritise what okay. are the major issues affecting society and adequately fund them. Thanks, and transportation Matt. is a key element of that. Thanks a million. Um, David Healy, the Greens, I'm sure, have some yeah. views on transport. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in fact, uh, I'm, I'm glad to, to, to see that entirely aligned with what John has said. Um, we, we have a situation where a lot of people are driving uh, under, on trips which they could, would rather take by public transport if we had the public transport system that we need in the city. And one of the key issues there is the integration of the, the, the bus routes, the bus with the, the train routes, and then the provision of adequate capacity. We also have a situation where a lot of people are driving their children to school because they're afraid to let them walk and cycle to school on their own because of the, the walking and cycling conditions that, that we've created in this city over, over, over decades. Uh, we have good examples for how to change those, those situations. We only have to go a couple of hundred miles to, to the Netherlands to, to see a society in which, you know, children, walk, children cycling to school is absolutely the norm and the idea of driving your children to school is, is very strange. Uh, the difference that that would make in Dublin is enormous, but it would also be a difference for people themselves cycling everywhere and obviously uh, using a, an improved public transport system. The, they're the, the, the changes which not only benefit people directly in terms of time spent in congestion, not only reduce our greenhouse gas emissions enormously, but also have an enormous public health benefit. Our biggest public health pro problem is a lack of activity and the, the consequences that the health service is seeing in that are, are, are massive. And then the air pollution, you know, to, to add into that. So the, the benefits are, are enormous all the way around if we do this right. Okay, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to take one final question from the audience. Hello, my name is Patrick Marks. I'm a retired building worker. In the, fifth, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the 60s, we, there was great fanfare that the building workers, we were the only building workers in Europe to get a pension. I had to retire when I was 73. When I became 65, because when the building went down in, in the 90s, I was do, do just jobbing around. I, I, when I went to get, to get my pension over the, the construction, in, uh, I was told I wasn't entitled to the, the money I paid in. I paid 25 years into a pension. But Tom Gormley came down and said, we can't give you, you're not entitled to that money because you were over for the year. We were only told when it was brought in that your next of kin would get the pension, your next of kin. Whether it was a, a, your partner or your wife, they would only get what you pay, some of what you paid in. That's one of the things. That I'm glad the Stardust thing was mentioned because I was going to mention that myself. I want to talk to Adrian Lloyd just for a minute. 
You were talking about St. Anne's. When you gave the, who gave the pitches to St. Paul's in the first place? And they have it all barred up for themselves. That was all private, that was all belonged to the public. Do you know that they're, they're going to privatise the pitching, the, 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 the pitching puck, the Bahartree Golf down there after, in, in the new year, for a private company to come in and run it? When senior citizens were able to go down there and, and play under 12 and you didn't have to pay. And there was a lot of senior citizens there only could play a few holes. And then they used to go home. At least they were getting out. Now we have to go down. We were told there was going to be a fiver. And then they, because we kicked up a bit of a row, they said, it's four euros now. But it'll be privatised after Christmas. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks for your, thanks for your comments. Okay. Um, as is tradition on our uh, election debates here, I finish up with a slightly uh, light-hearted question, a slightly easier question. And those of you who have been here before would know this could mean anything. Okay, but just, this might give you a real insight into the candidates and might actually help you decide which one to vote for on Saturday. Um, I'll start in, uh, in alphabetical order, so I'll start that end, Aidan. I started with you at the start, right? Today, would you believe, is International Carrot Cake Day. So I want a quick answer from you all now, right? What's your favourite bun and why? What's your favourite bun and why? Who wants to answer? Linda. Uh, my sister, because her nickname is Bun. That's bun, an easy your one. sister. Deirdre? Don't like no buns? John, do you like buns? No, fruit. Fruit, very healthy. Michael? Uh, pavlova. Pavlova. Yeah. Keen. Anything chocolate. Anything chocolate. Uh, hey, Aon. Uh, the fastest cake in the world is a scone. A scone. He's even a comedian. <laughs> we'll finish on that note. Uh, that's it for our Near FM special live debate in advance of election 2020. Uh, our debate was live from the Northside Civic Centre in Coolock, and a big thank you to everybody here in the Civic Centre for having us. Uh, I want at this point to mention and thank the Near FM outside broadcast team for putting the programme together. Thanks a million, guys. I also uh, want to thank our live studio audience for asking uh, great questions and for all of your contributions as well, and appreciate you taking the time to come. Um, finally, thanks to the candidates for coming as well and answering those questions and for all of your contributions. Thanks, candidates. So finally, uh, the election is on this Saturday, the 8th of February. And I hope that our debate will help you to choose who you want to represent you in uh, the next doll. So thanks again to everybody here. Uh, thanks for people listening online at 90.3 near FM and at near.ie. I'm Declan Ralph, and uh, I'll see you soon on the radio. Bye for now. Bye-bye. <laughs>